0: Head to the slash merch.
1: Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today.
0: And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011.
1: Oh, I know. You're telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered.
0: Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations.
1: In Season 6, our Disease Films series had adaptations like The Omega Man based on I Am Legend, The Andromeda Strain, Children of Men, and Blindness.
0: I Am Legend is so much better than The Omega
1: Man. What about the Will Smith version? Don't get me started. For our This Is Real Life Jack series, we talked Black Hawk Down and Seabiscuit. Some great true stories based on fantastic books. And we had more listeners' choices like The Fly, The Emigrants, and Scott Pilgrim Versus The World. You just did a series on The Fly on the Sitting in the Dark podcast. Did you read the original material?
0: Wasn't watching every Fly movie enough?
1: <laughs> our Big Betty Davis series featured adaptations like The Little Foxes, Now Voyager, All About Eve, and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane.
0: Are you calling? Betty Davis Pig.
1: Only in personality and force She is
0: a force to be reckoned with
1: (laughs) We talked about the entire The Godfather trilogy of course Iconic page to screen Even if it is just the one Mario Puzo book I wonder if Coppola will ever make the Sicilian
0: We also had some Zhang Yimou adaptations with Judo And Raise the Red Lantern Absolutely gorgeous
1: movies And don't forget the Hughes Brothers series with From Hell based on the graphic novel Brilliant material
0: Kelly Reichardt gave us Wendy and Lucy and Certain Women, adapted from short
1: stories. Plus more Hayao Miyazaki as we tackled Howl's Moving Castle. Find all
0: these books and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the
1: show. Get the full list of adapted films that we've covered at thenextreelcom slash originals and start your next read today.
0: Next Real, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Ho, ho, ho! <laughs> we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, we're bringing the holiday cheer and proving that Canada does have a dark side with Bob Clark's 1974 Black Christmas. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show and your favorite podcast app or join us on YouTube. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Real. And if you've ever thought to yourself, yeah, you know what? I think a fur coat really is appropriate for tracking a missing person. Then you might just be hip enough for the next reel's Instagram hashtag PonyPrize, hashtag Guess
1: the Movie Challenge. And with that, let's see if Gamesmaster Steven Smart has this week's winner on a hook up in his attic. Stephen, hey guys, congrats to this week's winner at Cotton Science who
0: guessed our movie was Trading Places from 1983, and they guessed on image one. I'd like to thank everyone for taking part over the last year and to wish all our winners the very best of luck in the upcoming draw. We've already started a new challenge over on Instagram, so hope everyone who listens to the show will join us for 2017.
1: So thanks guys, Merry Christmas, and see you later.
0: Tonight's the night, Andy. Oh, we need a draw. Oh, it is.
1: Oh, it is the night. We're going to draw the winner of the 2016 Pony Prize. Actually, we'll do a winner and a second place runner up.
0: Oh, I love that. I uh, was in the Slack and I was looking in our little uh, uh, channel there for what is coming (laughs) to the Pony Prize winner this year. Oh, dear. That is a meaty list.
1: It's a meaty list. Who knows if if people will want it, (laughs) but (laughs) odds uh, and uh, ends and bric-a-brac. (laughs) <laughs> it is exactly what we
0: stand for. Exactly what we stand for here at the next real Instagram hashtag PonyPrize, Prize hashtag Guess the Movie Challenge. Andy, what would how would you like to commence? How would you like to make it appropriately uh, ceremonial?
1: Uh, I I think that uh, you just give me a drum roll and I will draw a number out of the hat and then we'll reveal which uh, which week that was of the uh, of the year, what movie it was, and who won that week.
0: Excellent. All right. Well, consider the drum roll.
1: Commenced. And the runner-up is number 17, which is Stir Crazy from 1980. The winner of that week was at Fegfee. Congratulations at Fegfee. You are the runner-up of our Pony Prize.
0: Congratulations at Fegfee. And now I, I think we I think we need a, uh, a an even more robust drum roll. Would you agree?
1: Yes, I would think so.
0: All right. Let me commence the more robust drum roll now
1: okay here it is pete this is a really recent one too it is just a few weeks ago the winner is the holiday a little christmas movie and the winner is at snuggly mama oh excellent a one-time winner of the year and at snuggly mama took it congrats at At snuggly mama you are uh you are our winner (laughs)
0: That's outstanding. Uh, a one time winner with as many people who stacked the winnings. Some unreal image guessing talent this year. Oh, yes. Uh, in the Pony Prize.
1: I can't believe it. That's fantastic. I know. Are we we doing- had. We had some people winning, uh, you know. I, 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 don't know how many times the at Cotton Science and Brendo sixty one and at Feg V had been. Well, at Fegv is runner up with, I mean, at least ten wins. Uh, the others, I yeah. mean, at least seven or more. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it just goes to show it's such a random, uh, <laughs> such a random thing. But yes, at Snuggly Mama and uh, at Snuggly Mama, aside from the pony prize, is going to also be our next listener's choice in a f- few months, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I can't wait. Can't wait to see. What Snuggly Mama comes up with Uh, should be a fun show. We've got lots of stuff coming your way. Uh, The list, I know, Andy, you're going to post the list soon, right? As we get closer through the end of the year?
1: I'm going to post it uh, sometime after the Black Christmas, after this episode goes live. We'll post it on our Facebook page so everybody can see what at Snuggly Mama and what at Fegfee uh, win for the Pony Prize this year.
0: Excellent. I can't wait to see, uh, you know, that the... uh the old uh, ebay pages that
1: go live <laughs> 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 that's the next oh, real pony prize awesome. junk page <laughs> <laughs> there's
0: some really good stuff in there I, I guess we could talk about that next week once the once the winnings go live but we had some good donations in there
1: and so very there exciting. is definitely some fun stuff. Definitely some fun stuff.
0: We have, you know what? We do have a blot spot for the show. Ben Lott has written in with his rebound on the, uh, the third Godfather movie.
1: Part three of the Godfather saga certainly has issues. I struggled with the muddled ending a bit, and I thought there was some lazy script writing. However, you're right. This might be Al Pacino's best performance in the trilogy, and something about Michael's struggle to go straight and escape the role of Godfather worked well for me. While part three is clearly the worst in the series, that doesn't mean it's a bad movie. Your rank two hundred nine, my rank one fifteen. I think he's
0: he's on our side.
1: I think oh, so. Man. I think so. I was worried
0: I was. after after Rogue One. He went militant. In his <laughs> he went rogue one might say. <laughs> Don't say that. Uh, but uh, no, it's definitely. Uh, I I absolutely agree, and I think there was a. I I think if I remember. There was a contested uh, Rochambeau in our discussion, our ranking of Godfather 3, and you're still a little bitter about that, but that may define why our rank is 209 and his rank is 115.
1: Stone? What is it? Stone? Rock? (laughs) How do I play this game again? (laughs) Oh, I guess I won. Whoops!
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, no, we're not bitter. No, Andy, it's time. Let's do trailers. Hi, Andy, was delighted, delighted to see that the teaser has dropped for Blade Runner 2049. Uh, This is uh, due to come out, uh, well, sometime in 2017, uh, late in the year, I think. But they did drop the trailer, and we do see... Rick Deckard, and we do see Ryan Gosling, and we do see Wasteland, and it just rekindled everything, everything, everything that I love about the first Blade Runner movie. I'm actually really excited, much more excited about this, particularly now that, um, uh, you know, I've seen some of uh, Denis Villeneuve's uh, work. You know, we already liked Prisoners a lot, but my goodness, after Sicario and Arrival, uh i'm i'm really sold uh since the last time we talked about blade runner 2049 writing credits uh this time around go to uh hampton fancher and uh he comes with the story uh co-written with michael green i don't know i don't think i know much about michael green i know hampton fancher and and uh, uh david peoples uh, did the first blade runner and there was a lot of david peoples in the first blade runner right i mean it was that 12 monkeys vibe uh and so i'm i I don't know. I don't know what to make of it. I don't I, I don't know. I really like uh, uh, Hampton Fancher's uh, other uh, other work. But there just isn't. Um, uh, he's much more, I think, an an actor than uh, a screenwriter. So I, I don't quite know what to make of what to make of this. Still very excited to see what comes of it. And the cast looks great. The look of it is great. And uh, <laughs> I don't know, man. What did how did it hit you as a teaser?
1: Oh, it totally worked for me. I, I mean, I've always been a little um, reticent of the idea that they would even do a sequel to Blade Runner. But knowing that this is the, you know, the Hollywood machine and this is the, the kind of the corporate machine cranking away, churning out uh, every possible sequel and prequel and every... Uh, different thing that it can. Uh, it's it still piques my curiosity. The fact that some people decided, "Hey, let's let's think about this and and what could we do with the sequel to Blade Runner?" It, it does actually excite me quite a bit. I think the the cast, the look, everything about it uh, does excite me quite a bit. So I'm I'm very interested in that. Um, you mentioned not knowing much about Michael Green, one of the writers. If anything, uh, something that might worry you is that he is the writer behind Green Lantern. <laughs> Oh, Andy! <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, he's also doing the upcoming Logan and uh, the upcoming Alien Covenant. So he's got a few things, and I guess they're remaking Murder on the Orient Express because you know why not?
0: Well, I'm I'm actually very interested in what they're doing with Logan, and so I I, I think so far that has my curiosity uh, pretty peaked.
1: Yeah. And and he wrote some Smallville episodes and Everwood and Heroes. I mean, he's, he's done a lot of yeah. writing and some producing, too. So, I, you know, I can't pin much uh, uh, yes or no uh, as far as uh, what he's bringing to the table. Um, but everything about it looks really interesting. And you're right about uh, Villeneuve is, uh, you know, an incredible director. And I'm really excited to see what he's going to do in this world.
0: And can I just add the other thing that makes me kind of excited? I was I was leery at first because you know, the Blade Runner soundtrack I listened to probably more than any other soundtrack. And that that entire Vangela score was just amazing. Perfect and wonderful. And, yeah, it was it's perfect. Everything is perfect about it. And um, so Johan Johansson is doing the music for this next uh, this next version, and uh, he's also behind Sicario and Prisoners and Arrival and Theory of Everything. And uh, so I, you know, I don't know if that gives me any reason to be excited. Those are all scores that I like, and uh, you know, I don't listen to them all that much. But I'm I'm hoping that um, you know he brings the experience. He's he's Icelandic, and uh, so there is there there's something about that that feels appropriate. <laughs> for for this movie so uh, i'm i'm gonna go with it i'm gonna be excited i'm gonna choose excitement
1: there you go there you go i like that i like that
0: okay well uh, then let's do that uh looks like uh it's got a it's gonna open in france october fourth it's gonna hit uh the u s uh, october sixth twenty seventeen and uh that's and then japan in november and so we've got we've got a couple of european uh eastern european release dates so far but the, those are the those are the big ones.
1: Well, mine is a you know film that uh, it it kind of uh, uh, makes me angry a little bit that, it's, <laughs> that it exists. And okay, so <laughs> going into that, dude, do tell. So there's this th- this movie is going in style. It's it's uh, a film directed by Zach Braff and Arthur Lewis. Um, that is, uh, it's based on the 1979 comedy drama, uh, directed by Martin, Martin Brest called Going in Style that had George Burns, Art Carney, and Lee Strasberg as three old senior citizen friends who, uh, decide to put together a bank robbery. And, um, so I guess the reason I'm angry which really is it's nonsense that I'm angry at all, but I, um, I didn't know that Going in Style existed I started writing a a heist film with a bunch of senior citizens a few years back, and uh, and then I, I, was, I had this whole idea and was putting it all together and I was so excited. Nobody had ever done this before, and then I heard about this movie that Zach Braff was remaking called Going in Style, and I learned all about it, and that was like my movie, and I was very disappointed <laughs> <laughs> that it existed. Uh, and then so and I still have yet to go watch the original 1979 one because it just it hurts me too much, but. I will at some point uh, watch it. Certainly, hopefully, before I watch Zach Braff's. I I haven't seen anything by Zach Braff that he's directed that I've actually been very excited by. Um, So uh it was interesting that this is something that he picked because his other films definitely seemed about people dealing with um their exploration of who they were as young people and this is kind of the same thing i guess it's it's people exploring who they are as as senior citizens and trying to figure out you know how to get by with this uh you know, th- getting screwed over by the by the man, as it were. Uh, but yeah, we you know this one we have Michael Caine, uh, Morgan Freeman, and Alan Arkin as our three senior citizens who decide to rob a bank. And uh, you know, I will say it looks entertaining. Is probably something I'm going to see. But I'm still like, I, now I have to figure out how to write my idea so it doesn't feel like a ripoff of all these ideas. So anyway, I know, man, you what were, did you, you think?
0: Were, th- you were had. This is a boondoggle. It's a creative boondoggle. (laughs)
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: I am, I'm definitely more pro Zach Braff than you are. And, but, but I'm starting to question my, the rationale behind my position there. <laughs> I loved Garden State. I really enjoyed that. I, I loved everything about it. I, I really connected with it. And, and I recognize that maybe, you know, sort of where I was when I saw it. Um, but uh, I, I really enjoyed that. And that, and I loved Scrubs. I mean, I always know him as, uh, you know, Scrubs and, and, uh, his work on that show. Um, I I find him charismatic on screen. His work as a director, uh, I haven't seen I think enough of the other. You know what has he done? Five five films, something like that. Uh, has it even been uh, that many? Uh, let's see. Garden State. Oh, he did nightlife TV movie. Wish I was here. Self promotion, and then going in style is is coming. Okay. Um, in addition to the episodes, he he directed seven episodes of, of Scrubs. Um, yeah. So. Uh, I, I feel like I can't really uh, judge the rest of his work besides Garden State. I, I didn't actually see Wish I Was Here. Did you see that one?
1: Nope. That was his uh, his Kickstarter movie.
0: It was with uh, Josh Gad and Ashley Green, Kate Hudson. Yeah. So, it, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I wonder how I'll connect with Going in Style. This is definitely a change for him, and I am not... Uh, this is one of those kinds of movies that I will probably like to see, you know, late one night in the house on Netflix. Like, I, I'm not going to intentionally uh, go see it. It doesn't it doesn't pique my interest quite that much. It it looks a little bit derivative. Like, I, I feel like I've I got it. I got the jokes
1: before they before they did. I, I am
0: not. This is not an admission of guilt. I'm tired.
1: I know. So. Mine would have been better. Yours would have let's, been better. Let's That's just both agree saying. to that.
0: Yeah. All right. When's it? When does it hit?
1: It opens April 7th next year, uh, and then uh, Germany, France, and Brazil, uh, it'll open a little later in April, but it doesn't have a lot of release dates yet, just a few countries. So we'll see how wide this one gets. It doesn't seem like something that's going to spread across the world like Rogue One.
0: You don't think, you don't think Arkin has that kind of pull, <laughs> that old Rogue One juice?
1: It sounds like a disease. Oh, Rogue One is spreading across <laughs> the country.
0: <laughs> oh, Andy... Uh, This is Sergeant Nash. Are you the only one in the house?
1: A high school girl's been murdered.
0: Mr. Harrison's daughter is missing. And now at the house where she lives, the other
1: girls are getting obscene phone calls. Yeah, what I've done is I've tapped this phone so that when it rings, it'll ring at the station house too.
0: There was a little girl murdered over in the park tonight. Yes, I heard. Your phone's ringing.
1: Remember those idyllic scenes out of your childhood. Crisp winter nights, star bright, sleigh bells, crackling yule logs, candlelight glistening off of shimmering Christmas trees, chestnuts roasting over open fires, carolers beneath snow-covered window ledges. Remember those. Remember them well. After Black Christmas, they'll never be the same again. Black Christmas, starring Olivia Hussey, Keir Jullay, Margot Kidder, and starring John Saxon as Lieutenant Fuller. If this movie doesn't make your skin crawl, it's on too tight.
0: Black Christmas, Andy. You tricked me into watching Black Christmas. I thought, that, I thought this was another Medea movie. <laughs> uh, but instead, it is not. It is a, 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 a horror horror mystery thriller uh, directed by Bob Clark, written by Roy, Mo- Roy Moore. Stars Olivia Hussey, Keir DeLay, Margot Kidder, John Saxton, uh, 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 you know, Marion Waldman... All. Andrea Martin et al. Yeah, those are the, those are the big ones. And it, it's pretty much about a mysterious bad guy who's killing everybody uh, in a sorority house. I, I don't know. Is there more I need to say? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Officially, during their Christmas break, a group of sorority girls are stalked by a stranger. And then they are killed. <laughs> and that's what this, mo- <laughs> this movie is about. The tagline of this movie is, if this picture doesn't make your skin crawl... It's on Too Tight.
1: I want to be the guy writing uh, tags for horror posters. <laughs> yeah. That's just so great.
0: The, anyway, this film, it, it's unique for a number of reasons that we will get into, but neither of us had seen this film uh, prior to this week, correct? This was a new is, watch for you.
1: That is uh, that is correct. All
0: right. So how did it hit you on, on your uh, your first opportunity to watch this film? To celebrate the annual next reel, reel ringing in of the new year and the love and... And Heart of Kith and Kin.
1: I had a, actually, I enjoyed it quite a bit. I, I really went into this not knowing what to expect at all. My wife, I can somehow <laughs> managed to convince to sit next to me and watch some of it. And she actually stayed for most of it until she fell asleep. But for me, I mean, I really enjoyed the film. It had a great kind of that uh, slasher 70s horror vibe while also being kind of that first person stalker. And I mean, I I wouldn't say I love it or anything, but I actually found it a lot more enjoyable than I was expecting.
0: <laughs> okay, so it, it, I don't know—is that it, that's that's not faint praise? <laughs> you know, I've got to tell you, Andy, I'm I think we we talked about how it it may be that I have a latent horror vibe uh, in me, buried in me that that is yearning to come out. This movie. I did not find a horribly, uh, offensively terrible experience. What do you think about that? <laughs> well, good. Right? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> it surprised me. I, I found myself really kind of into it. Well, I had to watch it over two days because I did fall asleep the first night. I But that's, that's on me. I started too late. When I picked it up and figured out what was going on the next day uh i actually found myself uh really uh into it i had fun uh and and i think the thrills uh did what they needed to do for me you know it was it was appropriate ch- appropriately chilling when it needed to be chilling uh and and i thought it was a fun play on the uh you know the the babysitters uh the man's inside the house urban legend uh you, you know reading into this sh- to the film and learning about the connections that it has to uh and was inspired by uh some real life uh, murders in montreal and uh, and uh, you know the connections it has to uh the inconvenient connection to uh tv release uh you know to the ted bundy killings i mean there there it's just got some some uh, some storied history to it so um but but I I enjoyed it. I had a good time with it. Uh, why is this film unique for us? Why is it why is it unique in its genre?
1: There are a few things. Bob Clark, who directed this, he really was trying to um, pull the uh, the 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 depiction of college students away from what had been so popular in the uh, in the decades before, which is really kind of that, as he describes it, that beach blanket bingo type of portrayal. He wanted to do something that felt a lot more authentic to college students, and he really kind of pushed for that. And that's kind of how these these students ended up getting written and uh, reworked by him with uh, Roy Moore's script. Well, and what and, was
0: the result? I mean, what was the what, what did he what did we see on screen that was a result of that exploration?
1: I, I think you had students who were getting drunk, who um, you know talked about their, you know, screwing around and stuff like that, possibly getting pregnant. Uh, these are not the sorts of characters that you would have ever seen in Beach Blanket Bingo. You know, it wasn't just the, the rah-rah, you know, go college sort of kids. I mean, they were, uh, they were sorority, but they were partying and they were, you know, the, likely doing drugs and, and, and enjoying themselves quite a bit. And, and so that's something that was kind of fresh, I guess, yeah. for the time.
0: And and they were sort of listless. I think that was another thing that I walked out of. Like they were they were sort of rudderless, you know. And I think that yes. was you know prior to this point, you know, they were you know where we we would see college on screen. It was always really strange to find a rudderless person, you know, in in that capacity. Everybody really kind of was doing the school thing in order to go be successful and become a statistic.
1: Yeah, and and even so far as I, I thought it was really interesting to depict uh, Peter as this this you know music student who we don't know much about him but you see him doing this i guess it would be kind of a, a a big final or something where he's playing some intense piece of music and that's really kind of all we see he seems to kind of do okay but is he messing up it's hard to tell cuz the music is kind of a you know discordant type of piece anyway so i don't really know but then the next thing you know you see him coming in after hours and destroying the piano and, you know, it, that's all you really get of this kind of darker side of this character. And it's, it's this type of student who isn't, isn't necessarily clicking with what they're trying to do and might you know be somebody who does some bad things after hours, like destroying a piano. I thought that was a really interesting aspect to that character. And, you know, all the characters had those kind of uh, elements to them.
0: You know I think that's a great point and i I actually made that uh that note too about peter that that his story is actually one that I would be interested in seeing uh you know on its own right outside of the the sort of be bench strength character and and possible who done it you know uh murderer in uh in this kind of a film like watching him uh struggle with discovering that he's actually sort of rudderless or kind of picking up a rudder and realizing it's not the one that he thought he had, right? I I thought that was an interesting story. I think you can say that about just about all the characters on screen,
1: which is— i found really unique that all the characters have something interesting whether it's the house mom who's got her secret stashes of booze everywhere uh, they she all have a really riot oh she's great they all have really interesting little quirks uh, like i loved the i mean it's just kind of a random touch but just the fact that margot kidder's character um who really kind of just seems like you know just the ultimate party girl and just the the real kind of the the naughty one um that she collects like little glass unicorns and they're all like sitting on her shelf in her room. That was like such a strange little touch, but it was like, it really kind of showed a different side to that character that I would never have expected. And then of course she gets killed with her glass unicorn, which was c- kind of funny. But um... I have
0: always said that when I see glass unicorn collections, <laughs> I always look at the purveyor and I say, those will be your undoing. <laughs> they never believe me. And
1: now, I, now we know why exactly exactly <laughs> do you know a lot of people with glass unicorn collections pete i n- not anymore <laughs> not anymore <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. I interrupted you. You were saying (laughs) no, it's but it's I I like how all the characters have these moments. And even our protagonist, Jess, I mean, she's pregnant, and she wants an abortion, and she doesn't really love the guy she's with. I mean, there were just some really interesting character moments with all of these different uh, people that we meet throughout the film. Uh, You know, going even further, we've got, um, you know, um, Lieutenant Fuller, played by John Saxon. There's this strange like little comedy bit going on in his office between him and the uh, sergeant up at the front and then the laughing detective who just always seems to kind of <laughs> kind of laugh <laughs> at everything that the guy up front is doing and, and Fuller is always just like don't laugh don't laugh and, and it's just it was strange little moment but it created such great chemistry and authenticity and you know we talk about the show quite a bit this whole idea of of creating this world and and the world building and sometimes this is what it takes to just fully build a world is just really nice detail to characters that make me feel like this is an authentic setting
0: to whom do we owe credit for that Uh, have you uh, had a chance to read the uh, the script the Roy Moore script what do we think of him as a writer
1: so Roy Moore, he wrote this original script called The Babysitter, uh, based on this whole urban legend of The Babysitter and The Man Upstairs. You know, he's in the house. He's in the house. That whole that whole concept. People didn't click with it. They couldn't sell it at all. And so the producers, um, they ended up having Timothy Bond do some rewrites and retitled it uh, as stop me that put it into this university setting. And that's kind of the script that, um, that Bob Moore got when he came on to it and he ended up continuing to work with it is, is my understanding. I'm not sure if he was working with Bond or Moore as he kind of continued reworking it on his own as he was gearing up to make it. But he's the one who kind of added a lot of little character touches. That's my understanding um, and the actors. He's a, he's a director who doesn't shy away from letting the actors come up with little bits for for their characters and everything. So I, I think I don't know. I I feel like Roy Moore brought the concept of you know the killer in the house to the script. Um, Timothy Bond and Bob Clark. My interpretation of all this is that they likely are the ones who kind of helped build the world and actually make this university and all these characters feel so real.
0: This film is credited as one of the first if not the first of the unknown or unresolved killer shtick right this is it obviously influenced is influenced many films since but this one is is considered one of the very first where there is a an anonymous stalker we don't know the backstory of this stalker and it is never resolved by the end of the film Uh, how expert do you find this film in building the intrigue around that concept and how rewarding do you feel like it is at the end
1: I think they do a great job with Bob Clark um, along with uh, his actor that he brought in to, to play this character, Billy. Um, and Bob kind of wrote some of the lines for Billy, but then it, it sounds like they did a lot of improv, just coming up with these different voices for Billy and and kind of the story. It sounded like Bob really had a good story for what he thought of as Billy, like Billy and his sister Agnes, and Billy might have killed his parents. Bob is very elusive about a lot of the details, but he does give you some things. He, he won't say like if, the, if they killed the parents or what happened, but there's this kind of dark backstory with this character, Billy. And the fact that we only ever hear him, I mean, he kind of talks to himself. And so when you're in the POV camera, um, you kind of hear him mumbling and stuff like that. And when he's sitting in the attic and rocking the chair with the the suffocated girl in it and things like that, and he's he's going on and on and saying all these real, weird, creepy things. Or when he's on the phone, um, you know, doing his phone stalking with Jess and the rest of the sorority girls. Um, I, you know, the fact that it's all done through this this Kind of mentally unstable person who uh, talks to himself and makes these phone calls ends up really helping sell this whole concept, I think. I, I think otherwise it would have been a little more difficult to sell it, but I think it works really well in the context here. And, uh, you, you know, there's only a few moments where I feel like it might not, I might not have completely um, uh, bought into some of the stuff, like when. When Jess realizes what's happening and she picks up the fire poker and she sees him and he he races down the stairs to get her and she, he grabs her by the hair and all that. I feel like, you know, she might have been in a place to recognize him or or at least see that it's not Peter. Um, yes. You know, that's, that's the one moment where I'm like, gosh, she was awfully close to the guy. She very likely could have at least been able to tell. Um, but for the most part, I think Bob really did a, a really good job of of using that POV style here
0: and you feel like the ending was was rewarding to you like just the the, the fact that we end the film not knowing uh who did it and, and <laughs> therefore no spoiler uh you know it was interesting i uh, to to read that the warner executives wanted wanted bob to resolve the ending and so it was actually the executive team that pitched uh that that clark offered you know our our fur clad boyfriend chris to show up and say agnes don't tell them what we did before killing her uh, and and uh, Clark won, leaving it actually unresolved in the end. So we, we don't know who killed all these people. Uh, you feel like it, it was rewarding for you as a viewer?
1: I love that. The fact that it ends that way uh, is really brazen. And I think that that's what... Ex- is exciting about some horror films is that you don't get that resolution. It, you walk out of the theater still feeling uncomfortable. And that's, I think what a great horror movie can do Um, by having that resolution. It kind of puts you in a place where you're like, okay, everything's okay. Now Um, you know, I I think that this is a great um, element that horror filmmakers have been using uh, time and time again. And we've seen it in Carrie, which we've talked about on the show and how Mm -hmm. Brian De Palma has that great scare moment right at the end. Uh, You know, the denouement really kind of just, you know, gets you on the edge of your seat again, just as it kicks you out of the theater. And that's exactly what he does here with that last moment where you realize Peter wasn't the killer. The killer is still on the loose. He's sitting upstairs. Jess is in the house all by herself and likely not going to be alive much longer as the phone uh, rings as out of the uh, out of the credits. So. I loved it.
0: Uh, You know, I actually did too. I really liked the way this one was done, that it wasn't, that the film didn't end on a jump scare. You know, it ended on this sort of burning, kind of seething uh, horror that he's up in the attic and the phone is ringing and she is unconscious in bed and no one is in the house now, right? No one's in the house. She's completely alone. Uh, and I, I found that really, that that's a great terror moment. I think one of the things that, that I was a little bit disappointed by is the the killer's point of view was not universal, right? I, I wanted to have, to be, as, as soon as they established the killer POV gimmick, I wanted to to play that out 100% of the film. And there are enough sequences where as soon as we cut to something with a killer, it's not POV. I, I started to find that distracting.
1: Like what's an example for you?
0: Well, there are a couple of moments in the in the chase scene at the end. There are a couple of very brief moments where the killer walks in front of his own camera, uh, like just a shadow of the killer in front of the camera. So you can tell actually that we're not POV anymore; we're behind the killer, and uh, and that that sort of bugged me. The only time I, I found they could get away with it is when we when we pivot from the perspective of another character onto like the brightly lit eye uh, through a crack in the door or something like that. I thought that was that was great. Stuff, But there, there were some moments that I thought were interesting that they didn't leave it POV, that didn't feel like it would take anything away to leave it POV.
1: That reminds me a little bit of, uh, I mean, I was so creepy, it totally reminds me a little bit of Christopher Plummer's creepy eyes in uh, The Silent Partner, or uh, speakeasy a while back. Although this one almost is creepier because it's just the one eye looking at her through the crack uh, between uh, the door uh, and the door jam. Uh, that was a pretty creepy eye. There's
0: there's an interesting thing about that eye. They made a big deal showing us the eye. And there is a sequence where she is upstairs and she gets a good look at the eye right through the door because it shows her seeing the eye. We see her see the eye. Then the eye looks back at her. Then she jams the door on, because the killer is behind the door and she's right. on the other side of it. She jams the door and we hear the killer start screaming and she runs downstairs. And that's what ends up, you know, getting her down into the cellar. Right. And they made such a big point to show the eye and show the color of the eye, the sort of amber color of the, the eye, the bloodshot. It's, it's a pretty creepy eye. Then we see Peter mysteriously deciding that the only place that Jess must be is in the basement. <laughs> right, I, don't, I don't understand that at all. Uh, but you know he's been set up as one potential killer, and she now has the fireplace poker. But then, just in terms of how they cut the sequence together, they do enough of these sort of crash like cuts into the face to show us the eyes, and the eyes are so obviously different than the eye of the killer that uh, that it's almost like they're trying to to demonstrate to us that she is examining the eye and yet she ends up killing him. Yeah. She ends up killing Peter and and so she doesn't see that the eyes are different. But we already knew the eyes were different and I felt like that was out of context. I she should have known the eyes were different.
1: I, I guess you're paying closer attention to his eyes because I I wasn't paying attention to the fact that they were actually different from the killer's eyes. I missed that <laughs> entirely. Uh but and I thought I really enjoyed the way they set this whole thing up um with her killing him and never really revealing if he was the killer or not until that last moment we don't yep. know that the killer is still on the loose and i thought that was a really clever uh, story element here
0: i did too and it's actually one of my favorite choices to cut that experience in a horror movie to not show her killing him and leave that hanging open you know it it honestly i thought to myself this could go either way this really could go either way they could i would absolutely buy it if he kills her here i would absolutely buy it if he's suddenly on the team and they're searching for the killer together uh and and therefore i was actually surprised to see that she killed him in the process now making her a, a, a murderer i mean she she is drugged and put in that bed a murderer and that that seemed to be uh handled fairly lightly interesting uh first shot last shot
1: yeah, I mean, this is I, This is a great example of a first shot, last shot. I mean, it's essentially the same shot. You know, we, we mm-hmm. start on a long shot of the sorority house under the credits. Uh, we hear the wind blowing. We've got this kind of this creepy choral version of Silent Night. There's a silhouette of someone then walking across the frame. And then we, then we cut into the, the front door. The girls come home. And then our third shot, we're into the POV killer shot as he's casing the house and kind of wandering around, looking up toward the windows up at the top.
0: And the, the last shot we get we're inside the house. We're in the third floor in the attic and we are we're, we see Mrs. Mack hanging by the hook in the attic. Uh, we see Claire dead with the bag still over her head in the foreground. and we slowly pull out uh, and realize that we're actually outside the house. We pull out of the attic window. We are across the street uh there's a dog barking in the distance we see the cop standing on the front stoop waiting for the coroner to show up we assume something like that and then the phone rings as we get wider and wider and wider on this house eventually we are we we pretty much line up uh, it, it's a high angle instead of a low angle that that was on the um, in the first shot uh but the credits roll over this shot of the house the thing i love about it 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 symbolically it it doesn't really you know, mean anything to me in terms of, you know, the the house or the narrative of the story. But what it does do is it creates a, a fairy tale. It feels very much like, uh, you know, a, like a classic Christmas story, uh, where you know you might open on a gingerbread house, or you might open, or you know, the it's 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 uh, uh, like a book opens on screen. You know, it's that kind of an experience. And what's between the pages of that book? Is horrific, but the book itself, I think, gives me a nice fairy tale feeling.
1: That's a great uh, way to describe it because the house definitely has what would otherwise be seen as a really kind of a, a an, an old beauty, um, but here the way that uh, that uh, Clark and his team shoot it, it is a really creepy looking old house. I mean, it's this is this dark dark house, and it's always in just the blackest night. Uh, just the way they lit it, everything is so dark and black, which I just love. Um, uh, but yeah it's it's this sense of this foreboding house that even after you get after you go through the entire story you get to this place at the end where it's like no matter what you're not going to leave this house okay <laughs> and i think that's just a a fun way to uh, you know spin it here
0: yeah i you know even the other end of that which is you know no matter what the house is okay Right, right. they were <laughs> right. going to do some horrible things inside it, but this house is still beautiful. <laughs> There's something kind of, I don't know, subversively peaceful about that. I thought that was, uh, I thought that was great. Uh, let's talk about the cast.
1: <laughs> yes, uh, Karen Hazard was our casting director for this one,
0: and uh, she landed Olivia Hussey as Jess. saying, no, Juliet, baby. Oh my! I don't know. I I, I don't know much about the the. I, honest, I I never saw the '68. You didn't. You weren't uh, no. made
1: to watch that in high school.
0: No, I, I actually was not. Uh, so this was the Franco Zeffirelli adaptation of Romeo and Juliet. She, Olivia Hussey was fifteen, sixteen. Truly, the most
1: buxom Juliet I have seen. Was she... <laughs>
0: <laughs> I I have not. Uh, I have not seen it. What do we What do we learn from Olivia Hussey as as Jess, uh, nay
1: Juliet? Uh, you know she's got an interesting accent which I, I think is great Um, but you know she's she's a really interesting choice for the role here she's a beauty she's just kind of a natural beauty and like I said earlier she's our protagonist but she also happens to have gotten pregnant with her boyfriend who she doesn't really love I mean she kind of likes him but it's, it's that college relationship where she's like I mean he wants to marry her but she's like you know I don't think I want to be with you I don't think I want to have that life I don't want to have this baby and you know I'm still trying to figure things out and uh, there was something really nice that olivia hussey brought to that role i i enjoyed her in this character and she really takes getting tormented really well
0: she does <laughs> she does uh, she's argentinian i you mentioned her accent i would not have pegged uh, argentina as her country of origin by her accent. It is a no, really interesting either. accent. Uh, huh. But she, she has since gone on to do a, a lot of voice work. Uh, she's she's done a bunch of, of work in what I would call, you know, sort of... Um, uh, biblical films, right? She's done a lot of oh, yeah. stories from the Bible since then. And yet her voice work is all like Batman Beyond and Star Wars Rogue Squadron and Star Wars the Old Republic video game. And and uh, I, I don't know why that I find that amusing. Uh, according to Margot Kidder, I thought this was a funny quote, uh, Kidder says uh, that Olivia was obsessed with the idea of falling in love with Paul McCartney through her psychic. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> just sounds about right.
1: It's funny, hearing Olivia and Margot talk about each other, they, they don't sound... Like they quite got along. They sound really nice about each other, but Olivia's just like, oh, yeah, I didn't get to know Margot very well. She was very quiet. And Margot is just like, yeah, Olivia, she was really into Paul McCartney and kind of that whole thing. And she was, (laughs) you know, she had been in some big projects. So she kind of had that sort of, you know, star attitude, but, you know, trying to figure it out still. And uh, I loved her. It's just she was, you know, they, 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 it seemed like an interesting pair of those two.
0: It kind of felt like a sorority sister relationship to me.
1: Yes, yes, I think it works well for that on screen.
0: Cure Delay was Peter. Um, I would not have been able to place Peter without seeing the name and looking at his credits. Uh, and but, I'm, I am sort of blown away that I didn't pick the other film that he is known for.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. It's funny. My wife, uh, you know, we we started this, and the and the the Blu-ray has the menu play, and it's just got a bunch of scenes from it. And she glanced; it has a shot of him destroying the piano, and she's like does this have Viggo Mortensen in it? (laughs) It's like, no, 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 that's not Viggo Mortensen. This was made much longer ago. But um, yeah, you know, he did have kind of that, uh, you know, that uh, uh, look, you know, definitely kind of that long scraggly hair sort of look that I I think it could work as a Viggo Mortensen. But yeah, Cure DeLay is one of those actors that I haven't seen in a whole heck of a lot, but uh, he sure made an impression in 2001.
0: He sure did. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. Oh, yes. Uh, as David Bowman in 2001. He was, recently he was in, I think he played um, uh, the the granddad in Infinitely Polar Bear, the Mark Ruffalo movie, uh-huh. um, uh, recently. And uh, so, I, I mean, it's nice that he's he's still out there working. Uh, but And he was in Space Station 76, which I think we may have done a trailer pick of. I haven't seen it um it was like a black comedy in space so i don't know huh. what to make of that i had said about margot kidder that she's arguably the most notable face today but certainly not at the time
1: <laughs> it's interesting yeah definitely not at the time i think you know olivia hussey cure delay both of those uh definitely uh, had some pretty big credits at the time and even margot had some big credits i mean she had just been in brenda palma's sisters the year before this um uh, but uh certainly now i you know i guess it's a genre thing though it really depends on which genre you're coming from if you're coming from the horror genre you might say that john saxon might be the one that's most recognizable because he was in nightmare on elm street i mean he's right, been in right. so many things you might say cure delay if you're a real sci-fi fan because of 2001 or or you know olivia because of uh, romeo and juliet it's it's an interesting mix of a cast of people who are well known in certain genres
0: Boy, that's the truth. Um, Kidder, I think, plays an admirable drunk, really convincing drunk. Especially the line where she falls back on the couch and she's laughing and she starts talking and she almost throws up. Uh, that was about the most believable sort of micro drunk expression that I remember <laughs> seeing on screen.
1: Is that what she's talking about, turtles, or was that a different conversation? Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. It was right after that, right? <laughs> oh, so woom, funny. Womp 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 womp. <laughs> <laughs> I thought she was terrific. I was surprised she actually didn't... uh, When I started the movie, just because she is, for me, that memorable face, I expected her to be uh, our central protagonist, and she very clearly is not. Nope. Nope, nope. Again, unicorns. Undoing. (laughs) Lest we forget. You already mentioned John Saxon as Lieutenant Ken Fuller. Uh, He is... I don't know. He's more than a that guy, right? Right. He's not right. quite an A-lister. He's, he's definitely in that gray area, but a crazy recognizable face, over 200 credits. And you already mentioned Nancy's dad in Nightmare on Elm Street.
1: Yeah, I, I think he's great here. He does a great job with this role. And I mean, he is one of those, You're, I mean, he is a that guy. But yeah, there's something about him that really makes him stand out. So he's, he's a little bit more than a that guy, like you said. Um, I think he really is enjoyable here. And I, I like I said, I loved his whole team. They had such a great vibe.
0: I uh, Yeah, his whole team, he felt very, it was very believable to see him in this role as a lieutenant, you know, the way he interacted with these other guys on his, you know, in in the department, uh, the way he, you know, spoke to Sergeant Nash. Uh, I, I thought he was terrific, and the way he kind of plotted through the investigation, dealing with the phone, you know, tracing the phone calls, uh, I, I thought he was just really believable and sort of owned the role there in spite of all the chaos around him. I thought it was great. Marion Waldman as Mrs. Mack. Now, I, I don't really have anything to say about Marion Waldman, but given the series we, we wrapped up a series ago, uh, I felt it appropriate to at least mention that this part was originally offered of the house mother to Betty Davis
1: interesting it would have fit kind of the direction yeah. her career ended up going as her as she kind of uh, proceeded after uh, whatever happened to baby jane so I think that so too. Uh, would
0: have been really interesting she could have brought really baby jane to this movie and it would have been fine
1: i would love to have tied betty yeah. davis into this series <laughs> man getting hooked like that it's pretty brutal and uh i mean both of the those first couple deaths were pretty uh, horrific and uh yeah i mean man what a way to go
0: i i don't those houses i i don't know i i guess i i don't you know truck in those kinds of old houses but i don't remember ever seeing a, a meat hook quite of that size on a pulley quite of that size in a in a home
1: <laughs> in like oh, a you kid should, home you should come over and look at my
0: attic yeah oh good that'll be a good time yeah why do you say things like that I'm new to this horror thing. Just shut up. (laughs) Andrea Martin is Phil, another one of the sorority sisters. The role was originally offered to Gilda Radner. She dropped out due to SNL commitments uh, short of actually starting shooting. So Andrea Martin comes in. uh, And Andrea Martin is of note because she is the only actress to uh, join the remake of Black Christmas uh, that they did in 2006.
1: You know, I I didn't. There wasn't a whole lot to her. I mean, I thought she was fine, um, but you know, her part was was awfully tiny. So I don't really have much to say. But uh, I I still enjoyed her for her parts that she had
0: here. She is um, one of those incredibly prolific actors. She's got 154 credits. Lots of television. Lots of voice work. She is everywhere. She does have a a very unique voice. IMDb pegs her top four as SCTV Wag the Dog Anastasia and my big fat greek wedding she was in the the whole series of that as aunt vula Let's talk about getting it made
1: yeah, I mean, we already said this was a, um, you know, kind of a, a small film that uh, you know Bob Clark, you know, kind of took this script that these producers had found and they reworked it a little bit, but they didn't have much money. It was a very low budget project, um, but they got it made. I think it was like nine or ten weeks as far as getting the production done, and so they really just had to kind of crank through it and 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 make it happen quickly. But they were shooting this. It sounds like winter either the end of uh, 73 or the beginning of 74 and uh, just, or actually it might've started the end of 73 and then ran into 74 um, shooting over the winter. And they said it was awfully cold to film up there, but just to kind of keep that authenticity. Um, And then, yeah, Bob Clark had Reginald Morris on as the cinematographer. And, you know, I think that uh, Morris and his camera operator, Bert Dunk, really kind of are the ones who are credited with kind of coming up with this whole stalker cam. I mean, it sounds like it might have been used in a film before this. Bob Clark really, he he feels like he, in conversations, he feels like he had remembered seeing a film that had a tiny bit of that, like that kind of stalker POV camera, um, but he was not able to remember what it was. And so... For all intents and purposes, I mean, he kind of stole it for this, but it seems like this is kind of the origin of really creating a killer character, where the entire uh, film, when you when you're when they are on screen, you're looking at it from their point of view to the point where they designed this whole uh, hands-free rig. So Bert Dunk, the camera operator, could have this camera mounted on his shoulders, but use his own hands. So when you're seeing him climbing up the trellis outside of the house, that's actually Bert, the camera operator, climbing up the trellis to kind of create that scene. Um, or when he's wrapping the, uh, the, the plastic around... Um, uh, the girl's head—it's him wrapping her head with plastic. So,
0: <laughs> the stalker cam was great. Uh, you notice some split diopter work.
1: Ah, uh, yes, gotta love it when directors throw that t- that trick in. It's fun to see, and I every time I see a split diopter, I just find it really fascinating that they actually worked to construct the shot. In such a way where you would have those two different depths of fields, so it's it's always interesting. Even when one of them is like the back of of uh, Jess's head as she's talking to uh, to Margot's character Barb, um, you're looking at the back of of uh, uh, Olivia's lovely hair, all of it um, perfectly focused with the split diopter, then revealing. Margot behind her as they have a conversation it 's like it has a really interesting use of split diopter
0: production de- designed by Karen Bromley. This looked like a perfectly perfectly suitable sorority house
1: yeah, and apparently the the actual house was quite small, so I thought they did an effective job of making it feel uh spacious and or at least spacious enough. Uh, for all of the big scenes, because it does start actually feeling claustrophobic as we get toward the end.
0: It sure does, especially that last scene. There's a wonderful, uh, long, long tracking shot, you know, where we, where first of all, it does a complete uh, sort of rotation around the upstairs hallway, and you actually see for the first time the proximity of all the girls' bedrooms to the attic, the ladder going up to the attic. I thought that was a great reveal. And then the stairway down to the living area, so you get a sense of just how small the house is, which actually sort of pulls back the curtain on some, on, on some of the way they handled sound. It should have been, uh, you know, uh, it, it's maybe less believable as a result of that shot when they're yelling for one another and can't hear one another and assume they're sleeping. They were yelling really loud uh and so um you know i think i i don't know i thought that was interesting but well you have to factor into the the,
1: the the thickness of walls in this era of building
0: you're you're right <laughs> and and not the completely open atrium stairwell that leads right up to the doorwell you're you're right exactly. you're right i i i yield to the gentleman from Arizona <laughs> uh we already mentioned editing Stan Cole uh, some great uh horror cuts
1: yeah, it's fun seeing those cuts, uh, you know, across the uh, the the scene when you're going from like when Mrs. Mac gets killed uh, and, and she screams. But just as she starts screaming, you cut to the taxi driver knocking at the door screaming hello. They've got that weird like magnifying glass like viewer to see who's on the other side of the door on their door. And you kind of see that weird shot through that magnifying glass of him as he's kind of screaming hey, like hello, hello, hey, hey, hey. As he's trying to get somebody to answer the door. Um, Likewise, there's a great cut when somebody else screams later. And as they open their mouth to scream... You hear the phone ringing and then you cut to the phone actually ringing. I mean it's just some fun use of, of techniques like that. I thought that Stan Cole um, really, and, and he and Bob Clark had some fun with this.
0: I think so too and you know the sound too the the Foley in particular uh, was mixed so well. I think that the you know we talk about the music was crazy with Carl Zittra and all the cool things he did you know tying forks and combs and knives to piano strings to warp the keys for the score and then you know slow it down and alter it on tape later uh but the there was a uh a creaking house sound do you know this sound the creaking step it. oh yeah oh my god that was just awesome and so scary uh it was a a wonderful use of just wood on wood that was so subtle, but then you just can't unhear it. And I've been hearing it in my house all day long.
1: That's because somebody's in your attic with a big uh, meat hook on a pulley.
0: It could be. I don't even know what's up there. I know Not some things he- we got for our wedding you know, exactly. 20 years ago are still up there. Yeah. That's maybe what they're living off of. A punch yep. bowl.
1: Yep, exactly. With a head in it. <laughs> Awards? Did it win anything, Andy? Was it remade a thousand times? Definitely. uh, It definitely did get a remake. You know, it's interesting for a film that, um, well, you know, I guess it's one of those things. It was a film that uh, didn't garner a huge following until much later. Um, I mean, it got a few awards. The Canadian Film Awards, weirdly, I'm curious. I have to look and see what it was up against. But it won the Best Performance by a Lead actress for uh, Margot Kidder. It's one of those weird ones where It was like for this and for A Quiet Day in Belfast. So she won it for the two films. And then Best Sound Editing by Kenneth Healy Ray. Um, it was also nominated for Best Horror Film uh, by the Academy of uh, Science Fiction and Fantasy and Horror Films. So, I mean, it was kind of recognized in a few different places, but um, it's not exactly what you call a horror film. Um, but as far as the sequels and remakes, this is one that it's like I'm kind of surprised that it didn't end up getting a sequel. But maybe sequels just hadn't kicked in. I mean, this was just the year of Godfather Part Two, so they weren't into this whole numbering thing yet. People were just getting yeah, right. used to it, right? Right. Uh, so, uh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, it just strikes me that, you know, even 10 years later they didn't come out with Black Christmas 2, The Return of Billy or something like that, when they so easily could have. And it wasn't until 2006... That they actually did a remake for it, which is just nuts.
0: Yeah, I, that really surprised me. Have you seen the remake?
1: I didn't. I heard it was pretty bad. Um, but, uh, you know, after watching this, I'm kind of curious about it. I know Bob Clark produced it. And my understanding of hearing him talk about it, he kind of worked with kind of the, the storytellers and... And they wanted to really do a lot more of building in the story of Billy and his sister Agnes and kind of the whole backstory and maybe even tying in some of the other characters. I mean, that's something that I think uh, some of the uh, people involved with this film mentioned is that, you know, Chris kind of disappears pretty readily. What if maybe Chris was kind of involved in, in this the murders? And my understanding is that Chris might get tied into the crime in the uh, remake But uh, I don't know. I'm torn if it's actually... (laughs) Worth my time or not?
0: I did watch the trailer, and boy, they—it feels like they wrapped a lot up. You know, it was—it was very much the ingenue of 2006 film. You know, it was like Michelle yeah. Trachtenberg and Lacey Chabert and Andrea Black. We already mentioned his back, um, but it, you know, when you hear, when you just watch the trailer, they talk about you know the the killings and the whole reason that the killer is coming back to the house is because the sorority house is the house where he, uh, you know, killed his family the first time uh, and when to jail and now he's back to kill everybody else again and it it, there's history you see it's uh, they unravel all the stuff that you think you you know that they didn't unravel the first time it feels not rewarding (laughs) after you've just sort of uh steadied yourself for the fact that this movie doesn't uh the, the the film we're talking about doesn't actually resolve uh i'm i'm okay not knowing
1: and that's i think a, a big detriment to the remake i mean it feels yeah. very very uh expected to now kind of reveal everything and give us yeah. answers to all these questions that the first one leaves us with but what makes the first one so great is it leaves us with those questions and it doesn't answer those things
0: how so. did it uh, how did it do at the box office
1: well, Black Christmas was definitely made on the cheap, like I said, costing only about 620000 at the time, which is just over $3 million in today's dollars. Just for comparison's sake, Godfather 2, which was released the same year, cost almost 21 times that amount of money. <laughs> yes. Uh, this was a Canadian production. Uh, the movie was released in Canada first, opening mid-October, 1974. And as I mentioned a few weeks back, it did open in the U.S. on December 20th, opposite The Godfather 2 and The Man with a Golden Gun. For the type of movie it is, made on the budget they had, it did well for itself. It ended up making just over $4 million at the box office, which equates to almost $20 million in today's dollars. That puts it at an adjusted profit per finish minute of just over 180000 And let the record state that, with such a small budget, this movie actually did better than Godfather Parts 2 and 3 when you look at the profit per cost margin.
0: I can't believe it's even in the same conversation as Godfather Parts 2 and
1: 3. Before we rank it, I have a question for you. Okay. Did did Billy kill the little girl in the park or was that just a weird coincidence?
0: I thought that was a weird coincidence, but okay. This since you said that, this was the other thing that I was thinking about. The and and the reason I wrote this in the first shot is we actually see the the person cross the frame in front of us which I am left to assume that that was Billy coming to the house. For the first time. So I did make the connection between Billy when he was outside of the house. Like that's when he could have killed the little girl, like on his way.
1: Like she sees him and so he kills her.
0: Yeah. So he didn't make a very strong connection there. But why else is it in the film?
1: Yeah. It was weird because I was like, why Why is that? I mean, it's an interesting element and it certainly kind of adds to kind of the creepiness and it works to help get people out of the house. Yeah but uh it was a strange little element to have and what a weird coincidence that there's you know two killers out at the same time so
0: because because if they didn't i mean everybody was already out of the house they were looking for Jess or yeah. Ca- Claire right they right, were already right. out of the house we didn't need the other murder
1: but wasn't it weird that claire's father I mean it's not weird that he hangs around so much, but it was it it got to a point where some of it was so weird that he was like hanging out with with um with Barb as he was talking drunk about turtles and all that and I was just like, this is the guy whose yeah. father you know his daughter is missing, and here he is. Uh, You know, having these weird conversations, and then he's there at the end with, with Jess as she's been drugged, and and he's there with the cops. I'm like, why is he there? And then I got convinced. Oh man, they're gonna leave, and it's gonna be revealed that he is Billy, and that he actually killed his daughter. Which, of course, none of that ended up happening because he left. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I, but he was such a, a, a perplexing character to me that I just had to bring that up because it was just it was strangely written.
0: I thought he was very strangely written. They had him in scenes where he just didn't belong, and when he was in scenes where he did belong, he was so unemotional about the entire experience that. I had such a hard time, uh, like, taking him seriously. And he was not a comic character, right? He just—his daughter is missing, and he wants to be a part of it, but he was terrible.
1: Yeah, it was a strange a strange element to the film, that is sure.
0: <laughs> Andy,
1: I think we should rank it. <laughs> Let's do it.
0: Head over to flickchart.com, slash the next room. You can scroll down right in your show notes. I put a link, a handy link, right for you. Just tap the flickchart button. Uh, link right there and it will take you right over to the website where you can add it to your very own catalog
1: let's see how it does all right black christmas or mad max well i'm pretty sure it's mad max i'm going with mad max yes okay black christmas or the sandlot
0: I... i think you are going with um i think you're going with black christmas
1: I'm actually kind of torn on this one because I really did enjoy Black Christmas quite a bit and you know I I don't have a problem with putting horror films on from time to time like you do um but I still might go with The Sandlot because it's it's a, just a very easy film to just put on and just kind of let flow as I'm doing things or whatever so I, I think I'm going to go with The Sandlot actually I'm also going to go with The Sandlot <laughs> Black Christmas or Bull Durham
0: This puts me in a bind. I think we're both in a bind, but for different reasons.
1: You know, I don't think I'm really in a bind. I enjoy Bull Durham, but there was something about Black Christmas that I really kind of enjoyed. And I honestly feel like maybe it's just because of the Christmas nature of it. I actually might put Black Christmas on more often just because of of the fact that I can so easily put it on at Christmas time. (laughs) Okay.
0: I I think I am uh, probably Black Christmas.
1: All right. Black Christmas or Troll Hunter? Troll Hunter. Yeah, I'm going to say Troll Hunter. That's easy. That's a fun one. Black Christmas or Christine? You know, I ended up having more problems with Christine uh, than I had remembered. And so while it's an entertaining film, I still have issues with it. I think I'm going to pick Black Christmas
0: Christmas. I was going to say, this is another one that's super easy for me. It's Black Christmas. Christine was not the movie I remembered.
1: Next up, Black Christmas... Or the little foxes. Back to Betty Davis. Black Christmas for me.
0: Little foxes.
1: If it was any of her other films, I would have probably picked it. But over Little Foxes, I'll pick Black Christmas.
0: You know, I feel like uh, I, I feel like Little Foxes. Uh, uh, that is that has stuck with me a little bit more, just from a cultural uh, sort of interpretive perspective. I I really uh, that's that's stuck in my teeth, Andy. I think I might we might have to go to the mat on this one.
1: Let's do it. One, One, two, two three,
0: three scissors. Oh, well, crushed. Betty Davis just crushed you.
1: Betty Davis crushed me. <laughs> All right, next up, we have Black Christmas or the recent remake of The Magnificent Seven. I'm Black Christmas.
0: I'm Black Christmas. Andy, what is going on?
1: <laughs> hey, hey. <laughs> I like this, Pete. I like this side of you. Wow. All right, man. Well, that leaves us at 233 on our chart. It's in the 200s. Pretty it... <laughs> helpfully in the 200s. <laughs> it took a stumble from the first couple, but, uh, you know, yeah, it ended up yeah. being okay. It's in an okay place, I think. It's a really I fun, entertaining film that I certainly would watch again. It's funny that we didn't mention the, the U.S. release version of it was Silent Night, Evil Night, but it not to be confused with the Santa Claus killer movie, Silent Night, Deadly Night. <laughs>
0: I uh, which where would you rank those two Black Christmas and Silent Night, Deadly Night, Andy?
1: I've never seen Silent Night, Deadly Night, but I think we should put it on our list for next Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> it's on
0: there. That's good. I am willing to check it out, Andy. That's a oh, new so thing for me. What does this do for your letterbox ranking?
1: This is a tricky one because I, I think there are some issues I have with the film, but I enjoyed it quite a bit. So I'm, I'm sitting at a three and a half, I think. I think that's where I'm going to land. Three and a half out of five.
0: You know, I was going to put it at two and a half, so that gives it a solid three. What do you think?
1: All right. I'd say that's okay. We have a three-star horror movie. There you go. Love, Pete. <laughs> Where do we go from here as we ring in the new year? Uh we're going to kick off the new year with an Eddie Murphy series which is going to be a lot of fun. We're starting with Trading Places because it does have a tiny tie into New Year's. Uh so that's kind of our New Year's film and then we're going to do uh Beverly Hills Cop which is going to be a lot of fun and end the series with Coming to America, a great little dose of Murphy in the 80s. That was a good time for Eddie Murphy. It's going to be a
0: fun series. I think so too. All right, Andy. Well, this has been exhausting, and now I have to actually go sleep with the lights on. But you know, I do have to go to bed.
1: But Pete, wait, isn't your bed in the attic? Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Oh,
0: and I think horror movies are particularly juicy for the Amazon uh, critique.
1: Oh, it's always fun.
0: Mine is titled uh, Dark and Ugly, and it comes to us from Amazon reviewer Rock Hard in 2013. Rock says, This movie is not even close to being a mild slasher. You'd be better served watching A Nightmare on Elm Street. This movie is just plain sick and disgusting to watch. It's the total opposite of White Christmas. This movie should have been called Halloween Hell. Sometimes I wonder what goes through the minds of these screenwriters. The movie begins with the camera focusing on the five-pointed stars on the building and on the building number, which is six. Put the two stars and the number together, and what do you get? The movie also gave screen time to drunkenness, sexual graphics, and expressions. The sicko in the film speaks in different nerve-wracking voices, so you also have possession in this freak flick. Another thing you might want to know is that there's an underlying theme, abortion. This film was released in 1974, a year after abortion was legalized. It focuses on the right of the woman to have an abortion regardless of what the man thinks, wants, or what is right. And in very deadly terms, it states that if you're against abortion, you deserve to die. These are all unsettling and purposely crafted messages within an inhuman movie. It is not to be watched during the Christmas season, especially with loved ones and family. In fact, if you can avoid it... It's not to be watched at all, but if you're disposed to watch it, not without a high degree of perturbation, nausea, and inclination to jettison the entire contents of your stomach and intestines. Bluntly speaking, this movie is about evil and death. Fair warning.
1: Wow. Well, at least Rock has a point of view.
0: (laughs) It seems like he was looking for something... That was less Black Christmas and more White Christmas. I feel I, it now. I don't want. I don't want to like <laughs> bury myself in subtext. I'm just saying. My gut is telling me this movie was not made for Rock.
1: I like that. Uh, one of the people commenting on Rock's review even said, "I would imagine that Black Christmas would in fact be the opposite of White Christmas." <laughs> 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 it is just to make it, it, it clear. It's the pretty total black opposite. And, it's pretty black and white. I would say. <laughs>
0: <laughs> What's oh,
1: yours? I have a one star by Denise R Hodges who says a waste of time. I love these reviews written in all caps. I searched the web for the all time scariest movie. This was at the top. What a joke! In fact, it was not as I expected. The Evil Dead was way better than this. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and she screamed it.
1: And she screamed it at me. Exactly. Thank you, Denise.
0: There is nothing warmer than Amazon.com during the holidays, don't you think?
1: Oh, with a cup of uh, apple cider? Mm, (laughs) Makes me happy.
0: Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM.